Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Janice Kaplan, the author of the new book, The Genius of Women. Janice has been hugely successful in all kinds of roles, from magazine editor to television producer to writer to journalist. She is the former editor-in-chief of Parade Magazine, and she's the co-author or author of 14 books, including New York Times bestseller, The Gratitude Diaries, and New York Times bestseller, I'll See You Again. Really, really excited to talk with Janice today about ideas from her new book, The Genius of Women. How can we raise brilliant daughters who go out and change the world? Janice, thank you so much for coming on the show today. The book is The Genius of Women, From Overlooked to Changing the World. You've written a a lot of books now. You've written a lot of stuff. So what was it that inspired you to take on this project specifically next? Well, I have been interested in women's issues for much of my career. And I was specifically on this book, I was motivated by a survey that was done by a friend of mine, a very well-known pollster named Mike Berland. And Mike did a survey on genius where he found that 90% of Americans say that geniuses tend to be men. 90% is a crazy number. You can't get 90% of Americans to say that they like apple pie. (laughs) Mike told me these findings, and, and he also told me that when asked to name a female genius, virtually the only name that anybody could come up with was... Marie Curie. Uh, There were a few Rosalind Franklins thrown in there too. So he and I had lunch one day and he told me about this and he said, what do you think is going on? Why do you think people think that geniuses can be women? Why do you think that people say that geniuses tend to be men? And I said, you know, I really have no idea. And I pretty much spent the next two years trying to come up with an answer for him. You kind of start out here with like, what is genius? And you kind of made me really think a lot about it. And you have some interesting stuff in here about how genius is so tied with being noticed, I guess, um, and recognized. And on page 21, I love this, where you say, if a woman does brilliant work, but nobody notices, can we call her a genius? It's a bit like the tree falling in a, in a forest question. If the event hasn't been heard by the rest of the world, does it really make a sound? I mean, how much of genius is recognition and how much of it is, you know, doing good work and how do they play into each other? Well, early in my research, I was in London and I interviewed a professor from Cambridge named Charles Jones. And he described genius to me as the place where extraordinary talent meets celebrity. And I thought that was a pretty wonderful definition. I was pretty taken aback. Extraordinary talent meets celebrity. He's a 
academic, a, you know, a gray-haired Cambridge guy. He did not mean celebrity in a Kim Kardashian reality TV kind of way. He meant it in the sense of getting your work noticed. And as you said, uh, having it seen, being recognized, and no matter what field you're in, whether you're an academic, whether you're a radio broadcaster, or a, uh, if whatever field it may be, if people don't see what you do, if people don't pay attention to it, you can't have an impact. You can't have an impact in that generation, and you can't have an impact into the next generation, which is what geniuses so often need to do. So I think for so much of history, and sadly, probably up to this very moment, women have had one half of that equation. They've had that extraordinary talent, that extraordinary ability, but they've not had the celebrity, they've not had the recognition and the notice. And so that probably more than anything else is why we don't think of them as geniuses because we just haven't acknowledged them that way. And so why is that so important? And why does this dearth of female genius in our popular conscious matter so much? I think we've wasted such an enormous amount of talent and we've put people in a bind where they don't even begin to understand what they can do. We get wrapped in these stereotypes, we get wrapped in these biases and our expectations and uh, we limit ourselves. One of the extraordinary women who I spoke to named Cynthia Brazil, who's a roboticist at the MIT Media Lab, said to me that she thinks we live in a world of a thousand nudges, where we would never tell a girl that she can't do something anymore, but we keep nudging her in the wrong direction. Right. If you're son comes home from school and he says he's having a tough time in math and not doing well, you might say, oh, let's sit down and do it together or let me yeah. get you a tutor. If your daughter comes home and says she's having a tough time in math, you might say, oh, sweetie, but you're so good in drama. And it's those kind of gentle nudges that girls, children, all of us hear in a way far more than we would realize. Yeah, it's really subtle. But I think you're on to something that it comes, from, I mean, directly from the narratives that we tell and who we talk about and who we celebrate. And, you know, you have great stories in here. Uh, well, I really mentioned, I really was fascinated by the story of Mozart's sister, but you really found a lot of contemporary, you went and interviewed people, really impressive people and have their stories in the book, which I really enjoyed and I thought was refreshing. Well, I'm happy to share that story of Mozart's sister because it's such an important one, um, if, if, if I may. Um, and uh, we don't we know Mozart as a genius, and he was a genius. And to say that his sister was also a genius is not to take away from him in any way whatsoever. But his sister, whose name was Nanurl, traveled with him and appeared on concert stages with him when she was very young. And then when she got to be closer to her teenage years, she was sent home and told that it was time for her to go home and get married and be a mom. Can you imagine how incredibly frustrating that must be when your passion is music, when you care so deeply about something, when you've been on the stages of Vienna and Paris to great acclaim, to be told you can't do this anymore? And the story is so moving because it's so blatant. And as I just said before, yeah. we don't necessarily do that anymore. We wouldn't necessarily tell a young woman that she can't 
follow her passion and she can't follow her music, but we make it hard. And when you look at uh, yeah. Mozart's sister, you kind of think, well, why didn't she just stand up and say, no, I'm not going to go home. I'm going to continue doing what I love. Well, we didn't ask Mozart to stand up against the whole world. We just asked him to do what he does, which is his music. And that's the opportunity that women have not had, which is the opportunity to do what they love, what they're great at, what they're passionate about, uh, rather than what the world thinks that they should do. So then does that mean that we need to teach our daughters to look for that more or to assert themselves more and and try to kind of seek out more recognition because it's not going to be just given to them or what do you think is the the takeaway i guess for for teenagers i think we need to be aware of the messages that we're sending our kids there was a study that I talk about in the book that I was really taken by. It was done by a professor at Princeton named Sarah Jane Leslie. She's also a dean at Princeton. And uh, she did her research with a professor at NYU named Andre Simpion. And they invited small children into their lab. And they told them a story about somebody who was very, very smart. And then they showed them four pictures. And two of the pictures were of men, and two of the pictures were of women. And up until the age of five, when asked, who is this story about, the children picked the person who looked most like them. The little girls mm. picked one of the women, and the little boys picked one of the men. And then at about age six, it changed. And the little boys picked one of the men, and the little girls picked one of the men. And Leslie said she was really shocked by this, and she didn't have an obvious explanation for why it would be, other than that by the time they reach six years old, children have taken in all of those social messages that say, it's the boys who are the smart ones. And the interesting thing is that at that age, and even up through high school often, girls are doing better than boys in school. Um, and yet somehow that social message that they pick up on television, that they pick up from what people say has become far more important than the actual fact of the A's that they may be getting. The interesting thing about that particular research is that, as I'm sure you know, a lot of social science research can't be replicated. You know, we hear that over and over again, a study right. is done and nobody can do it again. Well, the sad thing about this study is that it has been replicated a thousand times. And if you have have little kids, you can probably do it in your own living room this afternoon. So that's the kind of thing that we have to figure out how to fight and how to face. And I think we don't necessarily want to take away from our children the social recognition that they get, you know, that little girls get for being cute or dressing up as princesses. Um, you know, as Sarah Jane Leslie pointed out to me, that's, that's a social benefit that they get. And we're not going to turn the world upside down right now and sure. make that change. But on the other hand, we have to balance it. If your daughter is going to get great uh, praise and from everybody and she is told how cute she looks when she wears her little princess costume, you better darn well make sure that she also has an astronaut costume that she can put on uh. and that you can tell her how darn cute she looks in that. And if she wants to go see Cinderella at Disneyland, well, that's up to you. But please also take her to NASA and watch a space launch and take her to space camp. 
let her see that there are other things that she can get praise for. You don't have to take one away, just make sure that you balance it with the other. AP exams start May 11th. Are you or your teen anxious? Prompt is here to help for the English and History APs. These exams have a single essay written in 45 minutes. Prompt is the world leader in writing coaching. Their writing feedback is what great teachers provide when they have more time. Here's how it works. You or your teen write practice exam essays. Then submit them to Prompt's writing coaches and you'll receive feedback consistent with AP rubrics within 48 hours. Get started now. Sign up at prompt.com slash AP and use the code TEENS to get $10 off. Once again, that's prompt.com slash AP. Use the code TEENS at checkout. Be confident for your AP exams. That's interesting that you talk about also going to see Cinderella because you have a chapter in here where you kind of talk about some of the messages uh, from Disney movies and the media in general. But one thing you talked about that was really interesting was Frozen, which I thought was fascinating because uh, it's like so popular. But I also thought because it just shows how anything can be an opportunity for a conversation. You know, uh, anything, if you see some something like this with your kids, it's an opportunity to talk about it, even if the messages in it are are not great. And especially if they aren't, then it's something that you can bring up and say, hey, did you notice this? So what what's going on with Frozen and why do you call it out in here? Well, I do indeed um, call out a bunch of Disney movies. Uh, somebody has said to me I should probably stop going to Disney movies since they upset me so much. But um, there's there. Let me give you a very blatant example, which is The Little Mermaid. And um, The Little Mermaid is making a great revival now because Disney is doing it again as a live action uh, movie. They're in the midst right. of making that right now, and. Let me remind you of what the story is of The Little Mermaid. Ariel, our little mermaid, needs to get the kiss of true love from the prince. And in order to get that, and in order to come live on land, she has to give up her voice and be mute. So she needs to win him without speaking, without (laughs) singing. What better way do we have of telling little girls that they should shut up and look beautiful? Look pretty. Now, I know that parents don't necessarily think of that message when they're buying their children little Ariel backpacks and little Ariel lunchboxes and dressing them up as Ariel for Halloween. Right. But believe me, the children are getting those messages. The children are hearing that and they are understanding that. And, uh, you know, this past Halloween, um, for some reason, there were a lot of little Ariels coming to our door. And I asked my husband if we could put up a sign that said, no candy for Ariel. And he didn't think that was a good <laughs> idea. Um, and he was probably right. I got to give him that. On the other hand, I'm not sure that my sending that message would have been any worse than the message that the children were getting. So um, I, I, I agree with you that even things like that are subject for conversation. 
if all of your children's friends are watching Ariel and the Little Mermaid or Frozen, you don't have to ban it, but watch yeah. it with them and have the conversation and point that out and point out that that's a problem. And I think those discussions can go a long way. And so you point out actually that like even just the language that we use is really gendered and uh, teachers come into a classroom and say, hello, boys and girls, but you would never walk in and say, hello, whites and blacks. It's so just accepted and okay to separate people out by gender, I guess, in a way that it's not for like so many other things. Right. And, and I think that's really important um, because we do start separating out at those very young ages. And, and that makes a big difference. Children are aware of it. We're putting children into completely separate categories, as you said, or as you quoted, uh, when, when a teacher comes into the classroom and says, hello, boys and girls. And we would never do that with, with other topics. You know, I'm almost embarrassed to say out loud a teacher coming in and saying, hello, whites and blacks, because it sounds so yeah, horrible. We know that you don't do something right. like that. You'd be fired by the end of the day. Right, yeah. exactly. Because simply, you know, it's no more or less true than hello, boys and girls, right? It's just recognizing two different categories. But simply saying it is saying that there is a distinction. And making yeah, that distinction right. somehow says one is, if not better, at least different. One of the women I interviewed for the book was Ann Wojcicki, who is the CEO of 23andMe, which is the genetics testing company. And Anne grew up on the Stanford campus. And um, so it was a fairly liberal and open place. And she said most of her friends growing up uh, were boys and girls. And when she got to high school, her study partners in high school, in her math class and in her science classes were also boys and girls. And um, she said it wasn't until she got to college that some guy said something to her that made her realize he was seeing her differently because she was a woman. And she said she looked at him as sort of an interesting sociological, anthropological species, sort of thinking, oh, you're one of those people who thinks that men and women are different. <laughs> and I love that story because I think possibly one of the reasons that NY Chiki was able to go on and create a company uh, as she did and, and deal in Silicon Valley, which is such a male-oriented area, was because she didn't see those distinctions and she, had been, and she had grown up not seeing those distinctions. And she has a couple of sisters who are also wildly successful. They all grew up with that belief of, we're no different than anybody else, there's nothing that should ever stop us. And we sometimes say that to our daughters. We give them those cute little girl power t-shirts, but all of the messages that we're sending are somehow very different than that. So I think that NY cheeky model of letting boys and girls be together, letting them play together, letting them be friends in high school, letting them be friends when they're teenagers, encouraging that is going to go a long way towards letting them be colleagues when they're in law firms and businesses much later. write about a distinction that a lot of the genius women you interviewed seem to divide the world unconsciously into men, women, and me. How does that work? They see themselves as being out, outside of that, sort of, or what? I think it is that sense of um, 
they're not trying to be men. Uh, they recognize that. They're very happy being women, but they don't fit into the stereotypes that we hold of women. And so in some ways they put themselves into a different category. Uh, Tina Landau, who is a Broadway director, said to me that she never likes to be called a woman director. She is a woman who directs. And it's such an important concept because it sounds like it's the same thing. But once you yeah. say woman director, you're lumping all of these women together. You're saying that all women direct the same way. And it's the same when you talk about a woman scientist or a woman politician. You're suggesting that there is something distinctive about them because they're a woman. And, you know, I think we've replaced some of the old stereotypes of women with the new stereotype. And the new stereotype tends to be that women are collegial and cooperative, while men are the leaders. And we make that into a positive thing that women are collegial and cooperative. But it's also a ridiculous thing, because right, right. think about it. We all know women who are leaders and women who are loners and women who are collegial. And we know right. men who are leaders and loners and collegial. But once you start expecting that a whole group of people is going to behave in a particular way, that's what you look for. And you know, somebody said to me, oh, well, Tina Landau, that Broadway director, is a very collegial director. And don't you think that's because she's a woman? And I said, no, she's a collegial director because she's a collegial director. Yeah, and yeah, right. Who, very, who also happens to be a woman. Right. And there are some women who are very, you know, tough and, um, and didactic leaders uh, as directors. And, and there are some men who are known as being collegial. So I just think if we get over that sense and are able to see ourselves as individuals and not as members of this group, we help ourselves and our children a lot. So you also talked briefly about same-sex schools, single-sex schools, some women you know have attended those and said, said they were really passionate about them. So is there evidence on those? Is that like a good place to send our girls to help them kind of develop this attitude a little more that they can be geniuses and they should go go do that? You know, I admit that that's a question that I'm a bit torn on. My instinct when I was writing the book uh, was to say that as I said with the Anne Cheeky story, that it's a lot better for men and women to be colleagues together. As I've been touring the country talking about this book and meeting a lot of people, I have met a lot of women who did go to single sex schools. And what they reminded me is that the world has not necessarily changed as much as we would like it to. And so perhaps if we do give girls that opportunity early on to feel strong, to feel confident that it can help them, on the other hand, I think that separating them out and separating people out is is never a good idea. Yeah. So, you know, there, there has to be some point, right? There's some point at which we're going to start to mix again. And so if you've been at a single sex school and all of a sudden you're in, in the real world, how is that going to work out? So I, I, I'm a bit torn on the subject. I think the ideal is to have boys and girls together and for teachers and parents to be able to recognize when they are allowing their own biases to interfere and to try to talk about those early on. If you have a single sex school, 
um, then perhaps the boys never get the message. Maybe the girls get the message that they can be strong and confident, but maybe the boys never get the message that the girls can be their equals and that the girls can be their colleagues and the girls can be their friends. Yeah, it's like... Um... There's all those great psychology studies where just as soon as you divide people up based on any characteristic and put them in two separate groups, they just start to think of themselves as members of this group and the people in the other group as other. And they've done a crazy study where they just bring people in and randomly give them a different colored t-shirt, you know, and they start to like favor the people in their group and think bad thoughts about the other people in the other group. And they like act nicer to people in their group and they're mean towards the people in the other group. And I just think, you know, the more that we are divisive, like in the language that we use and um, in keeping, you know, people apart and stuff, it definitely has some of that effect um, where it kind of contributes to that group group thinking a little bit. No, I absolutely agree. And if we if we get that far by giving them a red T-shirt versus a blue T-shirt, um, imagine how we do it if from early on we're separating them out and saying you are a girl and that is different from being fundamental difference here somehow. Right. We're here with Janice Kaplan talking about how to raise genius teenage daughters. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Look, there are a lot of social obstacles to overcome. There's a lot of societal structuring that needs to change. We all understand that. But over and over again, I found that the women who did succeed, who were geniuses, just didn't notice the problems on their way up. Yeah, um, beauty and the genius it was a complicated, <laughs> a complicated issue. I was the editor-in-chief of a very, very big magazine, and most of my top editors were, were male and the executive editor had edited a, a particular piece and I thought he had done a terrible job on it and I didn't really understand what it said but you know I wanted to make everybody feel good and my style has always been to be positive and upbeat and so I said to him look I, I may be our dumbest reader but I didn't really understand what you were saying here and my copy editor who was a young woman was standing there and i had made a couple of more comments like that and finally she said to me can i talk to you and she took me into her office and she said look you may fire me for this but i think you have to stop talking like that you're the editor-in-chief we all look up to you we all admire you especially all the women here we have 70 million readers when you say i may be our dumbest reader that's just silly. You're not our dumbest There's reader. No you know that. Stop saying <laughs> things like that. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable. And your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.